Well, I'm giving you all my notes for tonight. So, there you go. That's all I have in front of me is what you have in front of you. <laughs> I uh, spent quite a bit of time today making this chart, and I do say I'm a little proud of it. So, uh, tonight we're going to try to get our bearings on all this stuff before we uh, enter into the next phase of this series where we're talking about God's program. So, how about I pray, and then we will uh, get into this chart looking at the covenants that we have in Scripture. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You so much for all the ways that You provide for us and protect us, the ways that You show Your kindness to us and put Your mercy and grace and love on display. We ask that this evening as we look into Your Word that You'd give us a great time of study, that we would all leave here with a better grasp on these oaths that You have made by making covenants with Your people. Help us to understand what it is that You have said and rightly apply it to our lives. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, let's just start with like a big picture view of what was handed out to you there. There are multiple covenants in the Bible, of course. And uh, this is one way of categorizing them. I think it's a pretty good way. The uh, titles that we give to them are going to be our own creation. God didn't say uh, He's giving the Noahic covenant and here it is. He didn't give it that label. We give it that label, of just taking that one for example, because He made that covenant with who? Noah, yeah, all right. So you put His name on it, right? That's just what we do as humans. We slap names on stuff. And so that's where that came from. And now, I guess there is a case to be made about the Old Covenant and New Covenant where those are given names by God, okay? but the other ones, uh, not so much. In this series, we started off by defining what a covenant is. Well, actually, we started off with hermeneutics. And then we got into defining what a covenant is, and then we went into which covenant after that? Which specific covenant did we look at first? Yeah, Abrahamic. We kind of skipped the Noahic covenant. I think we mentioned it in passing, but we didn't look at it in any detail. And then after that, what covenant did we look at? The Davidic, yeah. We kind of jumped over a couple of them there. The Old Covenant and then the oft-forgotten priestly covenant that God made with Phineas. Be honest, show of hands, before you got this sheet of paper in front of you tonight, how many of you would have remembered that God made a special priestly covenant with Phineas? Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I drop Phineas every now and then. I name drop him because he's got a cool name and it's an interesting covenant. And then, uh, so yeah, we looked at the Davidic covenant there and uh, those three main aspects. And now what we want to do is focus on the new covenant for a bit. But to do that rightly, you kind of have to have this understanding of what these covenants are and how they play together, particularly the old covenant with the new. Because out of these five covenants that lead up to the new covenant, those first five, only one of those is a covenant that has an expiration date. Only one of those covenants ever gets replaced, and that's the old covenant. So we have to spend some time making sure we understand what that is, at least at a surface level, so that way we can appreciate the new. But what's also interesting is the other four covenants, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Priestly, and the Davidic, even though they are unconditional covenants that continue on perpetually, they all still have their fulfillment 
in the new covenant. So even though they don't get replaced by the new, like the old covenant does, those four covenants still find their ultimate fruition and their fulfillment in the new. So it's important that you recognize that this new covenant business is really important business. It it doesn't just affect the old, but it affects every single covenant that precedes it in that they have their ultimate fulfillment in that new covenant, okay? Well, let's just go one by one here. Um, Again, I just want to make sure tonight that we all leave here kind of having our bearings. I hope this visual helps. So that way when we get into more detailed discussion about the new covenant, you'll have this in mind. But let's start with the Noahic covenant, that first column there. And... um, Let's look actually at Isaiah 54, because I'm sure you remember Genesis 9, where God gives the sign of the rainbow. That's a pretty famous passage that we can remember off the top of our heads. But this covenant actually does get repeated later on in the Old Testament in Isaiah 54. Let's uh, check that out. Isaiah 54. Verse 9. I'll read that for us. Isaiah 54.9, it says, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. So there's a reference here back to that original promise that never again will God destroy the earth with a flood. I do think it's interesting, and this is the first time I'm really processing this, at least in the ESV, which is what I'm using tonight. In verse 9, it says, the waters of Noah. Uh, Sometimes we call it Noah's flood, and I can kind of feel like, yeah, that's not really right. That wasn't Noah's flood, but God said those were Noah's waters. That's kind of interesting. Never really thought about that before. But uh, anywho, any thoughts or questions on the Noahic covenant? It's probably the, well, not probably, it is the simplest. Okay, most straightforward. No, no ponderings, no deep thoughts about this covenant. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, in the end, the earth will be destroyed and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, it says. That's 2 Peter 3. There will be a consuming fire that will destroy the world, not a flood. Yep. Now, what's kind of interesting about this uh, covenant, as you think of it in line here, preceding the other ones, is we kind of do have this focus on God dealing with the world here, right? Some of these other covenants will get much more narrow. You think of uh, the Abrahamic covenant and two-thirds of that covenant, talking about the descendants and talking about the land, well, that, that's narrower than the whole world. It's dealing with just Abraham's descendants and just the nation of Israel. Or you think of the, the uh, covenant made with David. That's just affecting David and his descendants. But this very first covenant that we have in the Bible, it has to do with the whole world. And this is important because, like Joseph was just talking about, in the end there will be fire that will deal with the whole world. And there will be a new creation, won't there? All things will become new. We read about at the end of the book, all things will be uh, regenerated or reborn. And so uh, that's important to keep in mind that the new covenant as a as this uh, conduit or however you want to think of it, where all these other covenants are fulfilled, 
That includes the Noahic covenant in that God is going to ultimately deal with the world. God is ultimately going to renew the world. God's ultimately going to deal with sin in the world in the fulfillment of the new covenant. Okay, so even the Noahic covenant finds its ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant. All right. Well, the Abrahamic covenant we've spent a lot of time on. There shouldn't be too many questions about that. But as you run your eyes over what's in front of you there, Uh, Or if you have any questions that have come up over the last couple of weeks that you haven't asked yet, now would be a great time to to consider that. You guys got any thoughts or questions on the Abrahamic? And Greg, do we have an extra sheet that we can get for Mandy? There, left over. (coughs) Abrahamic, pretty straightforward. We doing okay with the Abrahamic? I'll just jump right over it if you guys don't have any qualms. Are we qualm free? (laughs) Okay. All right, Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. This is, of course, unique. You'll notice it has a bit of a different border around it, so it pops out. And it's got a couple of red words in there. It's unique in that it is conditional. It's the only conditional covenant of the lot. And it's the only covenant that has an expiration date. It's the only one that fades away. And that uh, fades away language comes from where? Do you know? Where in the Bible does it say that old covenant fades away? There's a right guess, there's a great guess, and then there are a bunch of wrong answers. Oh, yeah, hey. You know what? That's a good guess. We'll put a new category in there. That's a good guess. Um, Hebrews would have been a great guess because Hebrews does say the uh, first covenant is becoming obsolete. That's an interesting phrasing. It's actually 2 Corinthians 3 that we just recently covered in the sermon series through 2 Corinthians where it talks about that old covenant fading away, the old covenant fading away. But let's go back to Exodus, the second book of your Bible, Exodus 19. And let's look at where this old covenant was new. (laughs) This is when it was first initiated here. In Exodus 19. And let's see, where do I want to start? Hmm. I should have written this down. See, I should have had more notes than just that chart tonight, probably. But uh, let's look at Exodus 19, starting in verse uh, 9. Someone want to read 9 to 15? Who can read that for us? Exodus 19, 9 to 15. Go ahead. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up on a mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Each 
shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up to the, <coughs> up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. All right. Yep, that's good. So what you have that follows here, verse 16, thunders, lightnings, thick cloud, very loud trumpet blast, and God meets with his people Israel. And we see back in verse 5, same chapter, that God is setting them up saying, you will need to obey my voice and keep my covenant. There's our word, covenant. And you will be treasured, a treasured possession among all the peoples, etc., etc. So God here is initiating a covenant with his people that will be immediately followed by what in chapter 20? Yeah, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. This is where the commandments begin. Exodus chapter 20. A lot of times when we say uh, the law, we could mean the whole Old Testament. We could mean the first five books of the Bible as a whole. That's the Torah. But the commandments specifically really begin in chapter 20, and on and on they go. And uh, God outlines for Israel many different things that they are to do in this covenant. And there's a lot at stake for them. As we get to the, uh, the end of the Torah, you'll see I have as a reference there for key texts, uh, Deuteronomy 27 through 29, we have these blessings and curses that are set before them. And it's all contingent on their obedience. God lays out the law and he says, if you do this, you will live. And if you do not perform these commandments, if you do not keep my ordinances, you'll die. And we find out that the land even, this land that was given to Israel, the land of Canaan that was promised to Abraham and his descendants forever, their occupancy in that land is on the line with the law. They can, they will own the land forever, according to God. But they can't enjoy the land. They can't be in the land. They can't experience God's blessing in the land. They can't have safety, security, and agricultural blessing and all kinds of uh, miracles of God's protection and provision in the land unless they obey the commandments. And so that's what makes this covenant conditional. That's why you have in red there in the middle of your sheet, conditional. All of Israel was to keep the law, and if they disobeyed the law, they would be cursed by God. And of course, they would disobey the law. That was actually part of the giving of the law, is that Moses said, when you do disobey, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> it was kind of like baked in there that this is actually not good for you because you are unable to keep the law. And uh, praise be to God that there was an expiration date on this, and it was to be replaced by a new and better covenant, right? Uh, we are not under the old covenant. We are not under the law, but we are now party to a new covenant, and we are under grace. And I am so glad I live here and now. So, okay. I'll pause there for station identification and any other thoughts you might want to share. And if you don't have a lot of thoughts, we're going to end early tonight. So, <clears throat> Okay. All right, I'll read the summary at the bottom of the sheet. <laughs> 
the sons of Jacob were to inhabit their land and enjoy blessings in it if they perform God's commands, keeping his law as it was revealed through Moses. This covenant is replaced by the new covenant. All right. So that's the big idea with the old covenant. Uh, The old covenant, of course, touches on the other covenants, some of them, uh, pretty much all of them, but the Noahic. It touches the Abrahamic covenant because the Abrahamic covenant cannot be fulfilled or enjoyed unless Israel obeys. So the Abrahamic covenant and enjoying the blessings of it, the realization of the promises in that covenant was now contingent when this covenant was made. Are you seeing that? Okay, not, not if you're with me. If you're not going to talk, at least not. Okay, so if, the, if they obeyed, they could then realize that covenant. So now the, the old covenant kind of comes on top of the Abrahamic. Then you get to the priestly covenant that we're going to go to next. So we can go ahead and turn to Numbers 25, just a couple books over. Numbers chapter 25. And this has to do with priests. Well, where do we find out about priests? In that old covenant. As a part of the law that was given to Israel, God gives them priests and he outlines what they should be wearing, what they should be doing, what holidays they need to observe and what, how they would function, how they would minister in the, in the land. And so the old covenant uh, is kind of like the vehicle for us finding out about priests and learning about this special class of people among Israelites. And even the Davidic covenant that Tyler's been walking us through for the last few weeks, that was given under the old covenant, wasn't it? So someone might ask you, hey, if God said that David was never going to lack a man to sit on the throne, how do you explain the fact that northern kingdom was obliterated, southern kingdom was obliterated, and there, were, there was like no Israel? And then you, had, like, you enter into the time after Christ and all this time leading up till 1948, Israel wasn't even a recognized state. So how do you, how do you explain that? How do you explain that? Hmm, what do you do? Because God said, your kingdom will be established forever. You'll never lack a man to sit on the throne. Can you figure it out? Think about how the old covenant plays in with this. How do you, how do you explain it? We can't? I don't know, God must have been wrong. Well, let's not say that. Do we have an alternative to that? Any takers? Uh, when he comes to 
Okay. Okay. So yeah, Andy's really, really onto something. Okay, we're really close to an answer here. Um, think of that time from when the southern kingdom was you know, obliterated by the Babylonians to the time of Christ. So you've got that 550 to 600 year period there. Okay. Why did that happen to Israel? Now, you can give a Sunday school answer and say, because God says so or whatever. Okay, and that's right. But more specifically, why did that happen? Why? <laughs> yeah. Okay, they were disobedient. And they were under what commands that they had to obey? Yeah, yes, the mosaic. Okay, so again, look at that column that says old for the old covenant. It was a conditional covenant based on God's commands. So was God going to establish this Davidic kingdom and allow them to continue on in peace, safety, and prosperity, even though they were rejecting His commands, disobeying left and right, not regarding His law, worshiping idols, etc.? Well, no, of course not. Okay. Now, what about whenever Jesus came? So now, now let's you know, jump ahead to when the time of Christ was happening. And He extends an offer of the kingdom to Israel. But did they say, yes, yes, this is it. Be our king. Let's have the kingdom right now. No, they said crucify him. So why isn't the Davidic kingdom happening right now? Well, because Israel's rejecting her Messiah, right? This Davidic kingdom has to do with the lineage of David, the house of David. And those are Israelites, those are Jews, and they've rejected their Messiah. So in, um, in this book, it's a good book, there are a lot of words in it, and it's very small print. Uh, it's called The Words of the Covenant by Paul Henneberry. He says this about the Davidic covenant being in conditional circumstances because of the, uh, the uh, old covenant. He says, the pledge that David would never lack a man to sit on the throne does not necessarily mean that the line of Davidic kings will be unbroken. The Davidic covenant was made under the auspices of the Mosaic economy, the old covenant, and awaits its new covenant fulfillment. What is guaranteed is the perpetuity of the line under new covenant kingdom conditions. God's oath cannot and will not be sidetracked. David will yet have a man reign in the nation of Israel. So what's going on is Israel's disobedience. That's what's going on. That's why there's a pause in kings. That's why there's no one sitting on the throne in Israel right now. is because of Israel's disobedience. And ultimately, in the new covenant, what's going to happen to Israel? You can look at your sheet if you don't know. What's going to happen to Israel in the new covenant? But what's going to happen? God, the Bible tells us what's going to happen. Yeah. They will be saved, won't they? Yeah, it's, it's, it hasn't happened yet. But Romans 11 tells us all Israel will be saved. And we have over and over again in the prophets that they are going to be restored to one another. The house of Israel, the house of Judah will be restored to each other. And that there's going to be this great renewal and restoration in the land where uh, God not only saves them, but gives them great physical blessings in the land. That's where the Davidic covenant has its ultimate fulfillment where you're actually going to have Jesus, the son of David, as Andy was pointing out, reigning on the throne, ruling from Jerusalem with a rod of iron. We haven't seen that yet, have we? 
<laughs> but it's going to happen. And the nations are going to do what? They're going to obey. Because there's going to be no question about who the king of kings is. And they will submit to that king of kings, okay? So the old covenant touches the other covenants in that sense. And now let's look at the uh, priestly covenant real quick. The covenant with Phineas and his descendants. The, uh, like I said, the oft-forgotten one. Would someone read verses 6 to 13 of Numbers 25? Who's got it? 6 to 13. Go ahead, Mike. <laughs> Brittany, you'll get the next one. All right. So here is an unconditional promise, and an oath made by God, no strings attached, where he says to Phineas, or of Phineas and his descendants, that there will be an ongoing lineage of Levitical priests. Now, Phineas was whose grandson? Did you catch that in there? Aaron's grandson. And who was Aaron? Okay, all right. So this would be Moses' great-nephew. Something like that. <laughs> or great-great-nephew. I'm not sure how that works. But Phineas, here he is. He stabs a guy and then he gets blessed. All right? So be careful how you apply that text. But he was zealous for righteousness in Israel, wasn't he? And he displayed that with swift justice. Swift, immediate justice. All right? And uh, he said, God said, in response, that Phineas, his descendants, will serve as Levitical priests forever. Now, here's a critical question for you. This is going to determine a lot for you about how you view the Bible and what you think is going to happen in the world. You ready? Thinking cap. Put it on. Okay, lock it in. Pull the, pull the string. Hopefully you change the oil on it. Here we go. All right. When he says forever here, let me point out a particular verse or let's say perpetual, verse 13. When he says perpetual, does he mean just until the old covenant is made obsolete, or does he mean beyond that? Any contrary voices in the room? And <laughs> Okay. That's very true, yes. Okay, so that's a little bit of a separate issue, but it's related. So Jesus, um, some people will try to make the case that Jesus was a Levitical priest, but I think that's a real stretch. Um, Jesus was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That's, there's no doubt about that, right, in the book of Hebrews. So he came with the new priesthood that's established with the new ministry associated with that priesthood. He, uh, he was not a Levitical priest. Levitical priest had to have a specific lineage. We see it's not only Aaron, but it's Phineas. And we're about to find out another name here in just a moment uh, from the line of Phineas. That's really important too. And so the Melchizedek priesthood that Jesus has comes along and it's displayed as a better priesthood because it's eternal. It doesn't count on lineage like with Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews says. We don't know his father or mother. Uh, so this is like a perpetual uh, priesthood that one person has. 
Okay, this, what we're talking about here is a perpetual priesthood through a lineage, okay? Not one person who lives forever. But Jesus lives forever, and that's his perpetual priesthood. And uh, it, it comes with better promises. It comes with a better ministry. And it's essential to the uh, sacrifice that he made because he was both priest and sacrifice in his atoning work, okay? So that's, that's critical, but it is a, a different issue, okay? The Melchizedek priesthood is just different from the Levitical, but do you sense a problem if we say that this promise to Phineas extends into the new covenant? Do you see a problem with this that someone might have from a theological perspective? What what do what did priests do in Israel? Okay. Now what's the problem with that in the new covenant? Hmm, hmm. Hmm. Oh, well, that's an interesting take. We can talk about that later. But uh, so we got a new covenant that Jesus brings. This is the new covenant of my blood. And yet we have a lineage that is said to be priests perpetually. Okay, turn with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 44. Here's one thing you need to be really careful about is not taking presupposed conclusions into the text and saying it must be this way or must be that way. We want our theology to be based on what? Yeah. We don't want to make our interpretations based on our theology. Okay? So this is a pretty interesting deal. Um, and when you get to Ezekiel, this part of uh, Ezekiel's prophecy, starting in chapter 40, sorry, back up just a little bit, go to the start of chapter 40, you have Israel or uh, Ezekiel receiving a vision, and it says in verse two, in visions God he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city to the south. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand, and he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me. Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I shall show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And what he goes on to describe is what in the following verses? What does he see? Temple. How big is this temple? <laughs> Huge. Like a city. And actually, there's really specific measurements and descriptions through this. You really can't confuse this temple with any other temple. You can't say, oh yeah, this is just like you know, Herod's temple that came along later. No, nope. tis not. It is not like that temple. This is unlike all of them. And as you go on, you'll see um, it has all these interesting elements, but one of them, in verse, starting in verse 44, it goes into verse 45 here, is a chamber for the priests. So there are priests participating in this new temple. And then we get over to chapter 44, starting at verse 15. We have rules for Levitical priests. And would someone read verses 15 through 17? 15 to 17. Who's got that? Oh, Brittany. Brittany was going to read this time. 
Thanks, Brittany. Close Facebook and open the button. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, so the priests, here they are, and they're offering, what does it say at the end of verse 15? What kind of things? Fat and blood. How, how do you get that? Well, you got to kill an animal, don't you? Okay. So here we have a temple that has never been built, that's promised to come. And you have these priests who are the sons of, I don't really know how to say his name in Hebrew, Zadok, Zadok. You could say it like six different ways and they'd all be wrong probably. But guess who he's the son, the son, the son, the son of? Phineas. Phineas. So here you have Phineas's line continuing to be priest in this temple that we haven't seen yet. And uh, let's scoot on over to the middle of chapter 47 as he's still talking about what's going to happen. Does someone have a heading before verse 13 of chapter 47? And if so, what does it say? Okay, well, whatever Bible that is, they inserted a little bit of their interpretation in there, which I don't mind. But uh, the division of the land. What you have going on now in chapter 47 is the land's being divided up for who? The 12 tribes of Israel. Has that happened yet? No. So we've got a temple we haven't seen yet. We've got a redivision of the land we haven't seen yet with Israel living in it. We've got priests reinstalled, the sons of Zadok, and they're offering up sacrifices in this new temple in this land that's being divided. Now, this is pretty interesting stuff. Now, Shar's uh, Bible kind of let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> uh, that, that's my interpretation, is that this happens during the millennium. This has to happen during a future messianic kingdom. What you'll read about through here is that uh, in Ezekiel, you see it quite a bit, is that the coming Messiah is going to have his earthly kingdom. And these are features of that earthly kingdom. And we find out at the end of the book, the end of the Bible, that it'll be a thousand years. But uh, all, all throughout the Old Testament, we see these promises about a future kingdom. And in that future kingdom, you have priests, the sons of Phineas, specifically the sons of Zadok, offering up their sacrifices. Now, some people get weirded out by that because they say, now, wait a second, Jesus died. Why are we doing sacrifices again? Well, I think there's a pretty simple answer to that. Um, did the blood of goats and bulls ever take away sin? Hebrews says that specifically, right? Now, there were, there were no goats and bulls that by dying could take away sin. So what were those sacrifices doing in Israel if they weren't taking away sin? Well, but they weren't taking away sin. So what, what do you mean taking the place of? Okay, but for what purpose? If the, pur- if the purpose wasn't so that they would have their sin removed, what was the purpose? Okay, foreshadowing, right? Foreshadowing. Like Je- it says in 1 Corinthians 5-7 that Jesus is our what lamb? Our, yeah, our sacrificial Passover lamb. So Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of these sacrifices. So what you have is foreshadowing leading up to the cross. And I think what you have here are memorial-type sacrifices that are reflecting back on the finished work. Uh, you think about Israel's history. Never once did Israel have the, 
the perfect uh, carrying out of the commands of God. Because they're sinners. They're always messing up. There were always people in Israel with disobedient hearts. There were always uh, Jews who were not true Jews in Israel. There were some who were believers and some who were not. And so when you do the Day of Atonement thing year after year as they were doing it, it was never done in perfection. It couldn't have been. Okay? They couldn't perfectly perform the Day of Atonement. And what you're going to have in Messiah's kingdom is you're going to have these, these sacrifices that are taking place and these, uh, the fulfillment of these covenants, Abrahamic, priestly, Davidic. They're all being fulfilled and Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning and these sacrifices will be done in perfection. There will no longer be sin among the people who are performing these. And just as you can think of like, uh, you know, the sun, well, the sun doesn't move, but you know how we say the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west and you've got shadow on one side during the morning, you've got shadow on the other side during the evening. Well, it's the same kind of thing with this, I think, is you've got the foreshadowing of Christ's death with the sacrifices leading up to the time of Christ. And now you have some sort of memorial sacrifices while Christ is there present. And it's like a shadow on the other side. One side it's foreshadowing, and the other side there are memorial sacrifices that God's having them carry out as a fulfillment of these covenants. Okay, Joseph. Yeah. Yeah, they're called Levitical priests in um, right there in chapter 44, verse 15. Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok. Yep. Sure, but he didn't erase anybody's genealogy and he didn't replace any kind of forever promises of God, right? So if God says he's establishing a, uh, a perpetual priesthood through a certain lineage, well, that's going to be a perpetual priesthood through that lineage. When Christ died and he began building his church, he didn't erase distinctions among people. Okay? Now, there's a sense in which uh, there is no male or female, there is no Jew or Gentile that we read about in Galatians 3.28. But we also know there is male and female, right? We, we don't uh, have Shara preach on Sundays. Okay? Um, so we recognize there's a distinction between male and female, and those distinctions do have implications that carry on. But when we come to Christ, there's no advantage for Jew or Gentile. There's no advantage for male or female. All people come. That's what that verse is saying. Uh, but there are distinctions that remain where ethnicity still exists. And those will exist all the way into the new, new earth. And so it's not that Jesus came to erase those distinctions or to replace covenants that God said would be perpetual. Okay, he didn't come to do that. But all things will have their fulfillment in him. I mean, it, this, this priestly covenant will not be fulfilled until Christ establishes his perfect kingdom on the face of the earth. In the millennium. Yep. Yeah, because after the millennium is what 1 Corinthians 15 talks about, where he hands the kingdom over to the Father, and he himself is in subjection to the Father. Yep. Yep. Yeah, well, we're just reading about in Ezekiel. Yep. <clears throat> Yeah, 
No, this, this won't happen until uh, after they're saved. Yeah, they'll be saved first. And then these events of Ezekiel will happen. Mm-hmm, yep. Two, Levitical and Melchizedekian. But Melchizedekian is limited to two people, Melchizedek and Jesus. Unless you believe Melchizedek was Jesus, then one. <laughs> Which I, I tend to lean that way. You know, so, yeah. Yes. And so you've got Levi, then you have Aaron, then you have Phineas, then you have Zadok. All in the same line there. Yep. Char? Correct. Uh, so when, you, when we get into the millennium, we are now, uh, well, I guess that, that just depends, doesn't it, on if, we have, if we're dealing with glorified people or not. Um, so and now I've got to think of, I've got to pull up my eschatology chart in my head and think about how we get there. But what, what was your question tied to that? I don't want to get ahead of you. Yeah. Well, in the, in the kingdom, so what you'll have is, um, as we think about, I, I should have my whiteboard up here, I forgot to bring it in here. So we'll have the, uh, the rapture of those who are in Christ with the dead in Christ rising first and the rest of us being caught up. Then you have the tribulation that begins sometime after that. And in that tribulation time, there are those who will uh, be saved. But the bulk of who we're talking about there, of course, are Israelites, but it won't be exclusively Israelites. But there will be the 144,000 super evangelists, 12,000 from every tribe. And it's the time of Jacob's trouble. And many of them will be martyred. Uh, many of them will uh, not make it out alive. Uh, especially as you go into those final battles toward the end of, of Revelation. And so how do all the people who are either, uh, you know, the church who was caught up with Christ or those who had died uh, during the tribulation, how do they get into the millennium? Well, they come back with Christ, right? And they enter into the millennium with glorified bodies. I'm, I'm assuming there'd be Levites in there. Yeah. Uh, so, of course, there's, I'd have to dwell on that some more about um, what kind of mix of sinners and non-sinners you'd have in the, in the millennium priesthood. So, thoughts, other thoughts or questions? Not reincarnate, but yeah. we're not Hindus all of a sudden, Tyler. Yeah, yeah. resurrected. <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, I, theoretically, yeah, I'd say so. And, and that's, we say theoretically because, of course, that's the difficulty with all this is we only know what God has told us. It hasn't happened yet. And so we're trying to do the math and figure it out. But. Surely you have more thoughts or questions on that. <laughs> here's, here's the problem for those who say, okay, I'm uncomfortable with this idea that there would be a temple again and sacrifices. Um, there, are, there are a couple problems, actually. The first problem that's a, a kind of a more minor one, uh, when people say, well, wait a second, you, you can't have any of that business going on for those who are in Christ. Those who have been converted to Christ, they can't be engaging in the temple and temple sacrifices. Well, the first little speed bump you have with that is in Acts chapter 21, Paul's doing that. Paul puts himself under an oath, 
And he actually pays for the animals and goes along with them into the temple and sacrifices animals. Okay, so you've got to deal with that. You've got to say Paul was in sin or something, if that's what you want to do. The other thing is, how do, where do you find your ultimate fulfillment in Ezekiel, these 40s chapters? And what people will do will either say it's metaphorically talking about Christ or metaphorically talking about the church. If that's the case, what is the dung gate a metaphor for? Allegorically speaking, what's the dung gate? What These very specific measurements about cubits and walls and gates and functions of priests even. What, what, metaphorically, what, what's the Levitical priest with the fat and the blood and all this stuff? There are multiple priests. You can't say Jesus is multiple priests. And so you've got to kind of figure out what all this stuff is. But most of the time what people say is, nah, that's just all metaphor and we don't really need to look for specific connections. We can just say it's all metaphor and then off we go. And I'm not comfortable doing that with anything in the Bible. Because if you start doing that anywhere, you can do that anywhere. Okay? So, so let me ask this question. I, I will allow any question. Yep. The sons of Zadok specifically. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yes, we won't be. Yeah. So they're going to be doing it because he's the Messiah that was prophesied from ages ago. Yes. And we're going to be sitting there with him, not necessarily in the temple, but we're going to be somewhere in the city, going in and out of the city of God. Well, yeah, we can actually get a little more, little more specific than that. Turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 19. Yeah, 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 yeah. Matthew 19. Um, huh, you should read this, Annie. 27 and uh, 27 to 30. How about that? Matthew 19, 27 to 30. All right. So to the disciples, he promises that they'll be doing what in the millennium? With, with Jesus himself, right? Um, in fact, we have promises that in that kingdom we will be judging also. Uh, you can take this and you can see by extension that we will have uh, the, same, the same kind of experience. We will co-reign with Christ. That's a phrase that, that we can use. Um, 
I had to cheat and look this one up. 2 Timothy 2.12 was another one. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, If we endure, we will also reign with Him. We will reign with Christ. Um, that's, like I said, 2 Timothy 2.12. You have in 1 Corinthians 6, the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 6, it says that we will judge who? Angels. All right. And he says, will, future tense. So we are going to have a particular role in that messianic kingdom that will last for a thousand years. Even though we're not Israel, that doesn't mean we sit around twiddling our thumbs for a thousand years to watch the whole world burn and, you know, we could start over. No, no, no. We will actually be active in that kingdom with a specific role. There will be, of course, I, I believe, a function of rewards from this life that will probably apply to that kingdom. We will be reigning with Christ. We'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, he says to his disciples. They are judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's fascinating. Uh, we'll be judging angels. What does that mean? That's the only verse we got. So <laughs> just hug it and say, can't wait to see what you mean, Lord. <laughs> you know, but, but we know it's in the future. And we know it's going to happen. And that's where it happens is in that kingdom when we reign with Christ, okay? I think God will find something for us to do. All right? Well, let's uh, touch on the Davidic covenant and the new covenant real quick. And then next week we'll get into the details of the new. Uh, the Davidic covenant should be pretty quick because we spent three or four weeks in that where you have those key texts of 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89 up there. But you also have that important Jeremiah 33 passage. And when you read that passage, you'll see that it's also talking about the Levitical priests. In the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, there will be Levitical priests there. That's, those two covenants kind of go together. It's nice that they're next to each other in the timeline because those two function together. Those priests will function in the Davidic covenant. You have those three elements. If you go down to the oaths section, of David's house, David's kingdom, and David's throne. All of it will be everlasting, and it's a perpetual covenant. And uh, the summary there at the bottom, this was made under the regulations of the old covenant, but these promises will be realized in the new covenant. There will be a people ruled forever by the son of David in this forever kingdom. Okay? And... Uh, as I've been saying here all along with all these covenants, they have their fulfillment in the new. And I'll go ahead and have us read one passage tonight, and then we'll get into it in more detail next week. Let's look at uh, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 is where we first hear about the new covenant in all of Scripture. This is the first explicit statement about the new covenant. There are some other implicit ones, but this is the first explicit one. And let's actually start at uh, 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. And would someone read from 31 to 40? Jeremiah 31, 31 to 40. Who can read that? Okay, go ahead, Joseph. Law within them, and on their heart, I 
<laughs> and I will also cast out all the offspring of Israel. For all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city will be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate. The measuring line will go out farther straight ahead to the hill Gareth. Then it will turn to Zoar. And the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the Okay, there are several promises in there, aren't there? And that's just one passage on the New Covenant. Uh, you'll see at the top there, I also list off Ezekiel, that's an extended passage. And there are more in the Old Testament before we even get to the New. But who's this new covenant to be made with according to this passage? Who's this covenant going to be with? God and Israel. Yes, it's uh, verse 31, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But you'll see, as I have on our handy-dandy chart here, that the benefactors of this covenant are not just Israel, but also the church. And so, that's, a, that's actually a really difficult uh, theological study, but we're going to go through that the next couple of weeks and talk about how that works. If this covenant wasn't made with us, how is it that we could be benefactors of this covenant? And we'll walk through that. But the, uh, the oath that God makes, the next box down, is that Israel and Judah will be reunited. And that's a big deal. You think about during Jeremiah's time when he was saying this, the house of Israel and the house of Judah will be like, exist? And <laughs> exist together? I mean, think of all the stuff that they've been going through. We're talking Babylonian exile now. Northern Kingdom's been gone for a couple hundred years. And now we're talking that the Southern Kingdom and the Northern Kingdom are going to exist in harmony with each other and be fruitful? Well, they'll be reunited, they'll be forgiven, they'll be made clean, they'll be given the Holy Spirit. Some of these details we get in Ezekiel. And Israel will dwell in their land, which will be rebuilt. That's what Joseph was reading there at the end, verses 38 to 40. The towers and the gates and the hills and everything that are mentioned there, it's going to be rebuilt and it will be blessed. The summary there at the bottom is that this is the only covenant with salvation promises. It's inaugurated in the church, but awaits a future fulfillment when Israel will be saved and restored in their land. All things are fulfilled in this covenant. Okay. Five minutes left to share thoughts or questions on these things. The, like, are you talking the, you're not talking the whole Old Testament, but specifically this column on here, the Old Covenant? Well, it actually depends on what flavor of covenant theology you are. So, um, yeah, this is kind of interesting. So if you are a uh, Presbyterian, um, like a real one, not the liberal ones, if you're a real Presbyterian uh, believing in the Westminster Confession of Faith, let me rattle off a couple names. Uh, R.C. Sproul, um, Sinclair Ferguson, Kevin DeYoung, Help me out, Tyler. One or two more famous Presbyterians here that we would read or listen to. Stephen Nichols, who I just shared in the email yesterday. Oh, yeah, yeah. Doug Wilson and 
Not that whole clan? All right. Very good. If you're one of them, you believe that the church is Israel. You believe that your children are covenant children just by virtue of being born of you and your household because you're Christian. Because you're in the covenant as a Christian, your children are in the covenant. And just as Israel was given the covenant sign of circumcision, your children are given the covenant sign of infant baptism. And some of them would actually go as far to do uh, pedo, not just pedo baptism, pedo meaning young or infant or whatever, but pedo communion, shove a little tic-tac wafer in their mouth, okay? Uh, now that's pretty interesting, huh? That, that's one way of, of, of looking at the Old Covenant. And, and so they would actually see the Old Covenant not as something, um, not as a, like a standalone covenant, but they see the Old Covenant as actually like a subsection of this big overarching covenant called the Covenant of Grace. You'll notice on the sheet here, I don't have Covenant of Grace. Because you'll notice in the Bible here, there is no Covenant of Grace. Okay, uh, We've talked about before, in Reformed theology, you have three covenants, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. And they believe that the covenant of grace began in the garden after Adam and Eve sinned. Covenant of grace launches. And you have like different dispensations within the covenant of grace. And one of them is this uh, Mosaic law period. And they would say a lot of it carries over. But uh, that's one way of viewing it. If you're a uh, Reformed Baptist, now this will be easier to list off probably. If you're a Reformed Baptist, so think uh, James White and Jeff Durbin, the gang down in Phoenix, or Alistair Begg, or uh, Vody Bauckham, or Paul Washer. Okay? If you're one of those guys, John Piper would be another one. You also believe in this covenant of grace business. You believe that it started after the fall. This, it started. Okay, there it was. It began. I don't know. I mean, you just have to kind of really squint and turn your Bible sideways to see it, but there it is. Okay, and it started. And um, they are Baptists, so they don't sprinkle babies. They don't practice pedo-baptism because they don't believe that today there's a covenant sign for covenant children. They believe that the New Testament clearly instructs that you only baptize believers, People who have a credible profession of faith. So we agree on that. Okay, we're Baptistic here. We're not, we don't do infant baptism. Yet they also believe that the church is Israel. That Israel is the church, the church is Israel. That like this is the culmination of the Israel project that God started. Here we are as the church. And we are true Israel. And so how do they view the old covenant? Well, um, it, it gets really confusing for me when I hear a lot of them preach. Because I'll hear them preach sometimes sermons that sound like, in the Old Covenant, God was demanding of the people works that they would be, um, it almost sounds like so they'd be saved. But now in the New Covenant, God has given us salvation by grace through faith. And that's something that I think a lot of people mess up on. It's not just one category of Christian. But that's not the case, right? God never gave them commands so that they'd be saved. Ever. So, um, 
they would have a view that because we are Israel, the law still applies to us, not for, someone would say not for salvation, but it never was for salvation. Some would say not for a right standing with God, and that's good because in, in Israel, you had to keep the commands to have a proper standing with God, but that's not true. But they would say that we still have to keep the law, um, but not all the law. And so they go into the law and they say, these parts we still have to keep and these other parts we don't. Some of them will be pretty strict Sabbatarians and say that we should still observe the Sabbath. It's just on Sunday now. It's like, well, the, how do you make that leap? You know, and it just kind of gets muddy through there. So um, if you ever meet one, if you ever meet Alistair Begg, you know, you're sitting next to him on a plane or whatever, you can ask him that question and go into it. Uh, but uh, it'll kind of depend on who you're talking to. But that's the main difference is you've got Presbyterians and Baptists who take that uh, reformed view. Okay. That was like a sound effect for the face I was making. <clears throat> They're all, all those ones I listed off are brothers in Christ, yeah. Do you think that their view of Israel is covenant theology is a result of what the reformers, is there a direct lineage between what the reformers did, you know, Martin Luther, Calvin, John Knox, all these Yeah. All five, actually. All five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, all. I mean, is there a direct image from that to covenant theology? And what is it? Okay. No, but let me back up first. They, they are brothers in Christ. Uh, I do want to clarify that. In fact, just a year ago this month, uh, we let James White have this pulpit, didn't we? He, I don't think they would allow a guy like me to have their pulpit, but we let them have our pulpit, and uh, we invited them to you know, come do that. But um, no, I don't think so. I, I do think there's a direct connection between the five solas and a proper view of salvation. Absolutely. But when it comes to matters of ecclesiology, that's what this is, is the nature of the church. What is the church? That's what all this is. Uh, and it bleeds into eschatology, obviously, but it's mostly ecclesiology. The, uh, the five solas don't lead you any one direction. I think actually what happened is that you had Calvin's brand of the reformers stop reforming. They, they stopped reforming too short. Remember, they weren't restoring the church, they were reforming the church, the Catholic church. One of the things they forgot to reform is infant baptism. They kept infant baptism. They kept the Roman Catholic view of infant baptism. So then you had some guys later on, I think namely, most popularly perhaps, would be like the Puritans, getting a stream of Reformed Baptists through there, um, who reformed that. They reformed a little more. But I think they stopped short. And I don't think it's until you get into the next century after the Puritans, that you start kind of getting these uh, better ideas of what the church is. Okay. The, one of the uh, phrases of the Reformation is semper reformanda, always reforming. Do we, do we mean that? Now, that doesn't mean our doctrine is shifting sand, 
but it means let's let's test ourselves. Let's test our doctrine. Let's examine and see if we can improve. And I think they just stopped short. Okay. I need to pray because we're past time. Father, thank you so much again for tonight and uh, this time we've had in your word. Please bless what we've put in our brains tonight, that this would be something uh, fruitful throughout our week, that we would put into practice this knowledge that we have through, through your word. Help us to serve you better because of the time that we spend in your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.